All right, we are starting Ecclesiastes tonight. We're going to be in chapters 1 and 2. I call tonight's class Pursuits. And we are in this wonderful room where we hope the AC, the heater doesn't kick on. If so, we're going to have extra fun. But we are in Ecclesiastes for the first time tonight. This is a book that you're going to both love and hate. It is one of the most painfully real books in the Bible. And um, I just pray you're blessed by it. I want to open with a, a song. And I'm going to read it like poetry because uh, I don't want to sing it. This is by the, the Rolling Stones. It's called Satisfaction. And it fits in so freaking perfectly with our text tonight. Here we go. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no. I can't get no. When I'm driving in my car and the man come on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. I can't get no, oh no, 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 hey, 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 that's what I say. You gotta understand, I was like negative 20 years old. I don't know how the chorus, the verse goes. I get the, I can't get no, I, I know that part, but I don't know the verses. Okay, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no, I can't get no. When I'm watching my TV and a man comes on and tells me how white my shirts can be, but he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me, I can't get no, oh no, 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 hey, hey, hey. That's what I say. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no girl reaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no, I can't get no. When I'm riding around the world and I'm doing this and I'm signing that and I'm trying to make some girl who tells me, baby, better come back maybe next week. Can't you see I'm on a losing streak? I can't get no, oh no, 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 hey, hey, hey. That's what I say, I can't get no, I can't get no. I can't get no satisfaction, no satisfaction, no satisfaction, no satisfaction, I can't get no. Wow. Thank you, Rolling Stones. Now, if you're not in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and believe it or not, I'm not. I forgot to turn there on my Bible app. What's my problem? So if you're already there, you just beat me. Okay, here we go. Here, Ecclesiastes 1. Good for me. The words of the teacher. We start with intro, verses 1, 1 to 3. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors which they toil under the sun? Now, I've got some uh, helpful things on your page here. Number one, we don't know the author's identity. I know you've probably studied Ecclesiastes before. You may have a commentary on your shelf. You may have a Bible that has special commentary in it. And it's telling you Solomon, 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 Solomon. We just don't know. The text never says. The text says Kohelet. That is Hebrew for teacher. The teacher. And the idea is linked to the word assembly, like an assembler. Someone who's going to, remember those assemblies in school, you show up and you all sit in the bleachers and you, you stomp until the teachers yell at you in a, a school assembly. That's what this guy is. We don't know who the author is. And here's what's really going to be crazy. We don't even know the numbers of the authors. Because you're going to have, the, 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 the teacher's going to start talking. He's going to go, here's what the teacher says. And then we're going to have another guy who's going to sound like he is the teacher. So we got someone quoting the teacher, and then we got someone with quotation marks who is the teacher, and we may have a third guy giving his commentary on the whole thing. We don't even know the number of the authors here. But here's the deal. 
this is the Bible. The Holy Spirit inspired this text this exact way. So here, here's the other thing to keep in mind. Keep Solomon on your mind. Whoever this person is, Joel, I just said I was king in Israel, son of David. Okay, great. That could have described 22 kings. They were all sons of David. I mean, were they not? I mean, so it doesn't have to be Solomon. But the teacher is going to use a bunch of language to describe himself where Solomon's going to keep jumping on your mind as the obvious illustration. If it's not Solomon, fine. If it is Solomon, great. We don't know. But he wants to have you to have Solomon on his mind. So Solomon is a natural person to illustrate with. Number two, the key word of this book, I love the New, New International Version of the Bible. I grew up with it. It's my favorite translation. I think they fail miserably with Ecclesiastes with this key word. The key word of the book, meaningless. <sighs> oh, New International Version. And don't get me wrong, the King James flubs it up too. They call it vanity. Here's what the word means. It means vapor, breath. It could mean vanity, empty, to no ultimate purpose. Here's how I know it doesn't mean meaningless. Because it is the exact same word that was also a proper name for the second guy born vaginally in the Bible. Abel. The, the Hebrew word is hebel. It means meaningless. It's Abel. Was Abel meaningless? Heck no. Abel was a martyr whose blood still speaks if we take the New Testament at face value. But his, his life was like a breath. His life was kind of like a vapor. Too soon! He died too soon! Yeah, keep that too soon on your mind. Because that's what's behind this meaningless. This idea of, ugh, It's like when you leave bread on the counter for too long and it turns green. The shelf life is like that, real small. It's like your ultimate purpose can't be found in that bread because it's going to go moldy. Number three... What self-focused life does not result in true ultimate gain or profit? That's the key thing here. If you are about pursuing yourself, you may have a good couple seasons, but you're not going to find the meaning of life. How do I know that? Because the dude that wrote Ecclesiastes had it all. He had it all. He calls himself a king. We're talking silver spoon upon silver spoons. He had everything. And he could get no satisfaction. I love that song because I try and I try and I try. And this dude in the text today is going to try every little thing he can. In fact, today's text is kind of like a poo-poo platter. He's going to try various categories. And as the text unfolds, he's going to go back and revisit these categories. But we're going to get a bunch of the categories today. So our perspective, verses 4 to, 1, 4 to 11. Here we go. Generations come, and this is depressing so depressing, by the way. If you're not depressed coming into Ecclesiastes, you're going to be depressed, or at least you're going to embrace some depression after our text today. Ah, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and returns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever turning on its course. So, for those of you paying attention, you know, north, south, east, west, the sun rises in the... You can say it, east, and sets in the? So he's already covered east and west, so he has to talk about the wind going north and south. Boom, north, south, east, west. He's covering the entire compass rose right there. 
All streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Ah. One of my dear friends, he's in his mid-70s, he likes to remind me. I, I complain about something or I talk about something. He says, hey, Joel, there's nothing new under the sun. This is one of the Ecclesiastes code words. Under the sun, toiling under the sun, the life where you have to spend out in the sun, getting that farmer's tan, doing your day laborer work. When Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, what's he talking about? He's talking about the guy who has to go out in the sun and work all day to get his daily coin to go and buy his bread to take home for dinner. Dear God, provide for my daily Eating, toiling under the sun. This isn't some white-collar desk job he's talking about here. Okay, we continue. Oh, it's never, they're never full. Boy, they're never, uh, what's been done will be done again. Nothing new under the sun. Is there anything which one can say, look, here's something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Oh boy, I'm encouraged. <laughs> Let's make my mark in this world. No one's going to remember me. Yeah, well, what do we have in the, tech, in the page here? Number one, even the greatest legacy is lost in the centuries, and the centuries are lost in the eternity. Number two, what is bigger than you continues on, and you don't truly impact it. You may think like you're making a big deal. You might be a big fish in your world. But the sun rises and sets and doesn't give a lick about you. The wind blows, hither and yon, wherever it pleases, and doesn't pay you, no, never mind. You think you're big, but there's a lot of things bigger than you that don't care about you, that move on no matter what. This is a great humbling text to remind us that, oh, yes, I'm not all... What is it? I'm, I'm, don't, don't write home about me. Uh, like, yeah, but I'm all that in a bag of chips. Yeah, no, you're not. In fact, you're not. You're not. Wow. Lot number three, life continues on and history repeats. What is always the same will always be the same. Well, that's depressing. The politicians like to say, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Yeah. What is always the same is always the same. Thanks, Joel. <laughs> Wow, I came for that. That's great. That's, wow, that's nice. Number four, trying to live life in a uniquely memorable way is a really fail, failed endeavor. I'm just going to live a unique life. And, oh, I remember that in college. I'm a very, very young Gen Xer. And I remember that in college. We're the depressed generation. We're the latchkey generation. We're the ones watching all of our parents get divorced and that kind of stuff. And, and we just can't take life. We love Ecclesiastes. Oh my gosh, yeah. So yeah, 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 I get it. But oh, we're going to, everyone's like, be unique. The whole high school experience is be unique. Just be unique by fitting in. It reminds me, I, I played a year of college football, and um, I didn't start, but I was on the sidelines, but we had the same deal where, you know, you watch football on a Sunday, you get the, the penalties like pass interference or, you know, offsides or holding, Every penalty, we would groan on the sidelines. 
Because those penalties turn into a 110 on Monday. What's a 110? It's the length of the football field, 100 yards, plus the 10-yard end zone. You start on one end of the field, one end zone, and you run the whole 110. But here's the thing. The coaches don't care how fast or slow you go. You have to start and finish at the same time. So the team loved me. <laughs> me, big old nose tackle Joel. I'm struggling to run this down the field, and they didn't care. As long as everybody ran my speed, as long as we finished at the same time, we were all good. But then you got the little skinny gazelles on the team. And they start to become heroes. And the big guys on the team would yell down the line, don't be a hero! Because if somebody finishes first, we got to run it again. It's like, run with JB over there. Yeah, and I'm just huffing and puffing and trying to make my way down the field. And that's the one time I could run as slow as I wanted and no one cared. Yeah, don't be a hero. I want to stand out, but you have to be the same as everybody else. Right. Huh. Well, how do I know it's a failed endeavor to try to stand out? I wrote down some names. Who knows the name? I'm going to butcher this. Leo Enrique Beckland. Beckland. Who knows that name? Does anybody know that name? That guy changed your life in 1907, and you don't even know it. That dude invented plastic. Can you imagine your life without plastic? Anytime someone's like, oh, the world oil shortage. Um, yeah, oil goes into plastic. Without oil, we don't have... I mean, imagine your medicine. Imagine all these things in the hospital with plastic... So you don't know that guy's name. He's just some random dude. But he made one of the greatest inventions. I think he did it by accident. How about George Crum? C-R-U-M. I'm a large man. I like George Crum. He unwittingly de developed potato chips. Yeah. 1853. How about Ruth Wakefield? And I'll give you a clue on this one. She was one of the owners and proprietors of the Toll House Inn. She unwittingly, she ran out of Baker's Chocolate one day making her cookies, and so she grabbed a couple candy bars and started cutting them up real, real nicely and made the first chocolate chips. And everyone raved about her Toll House cookies. A large man's world has changed twice. That was 1937. How about John Walker? You kidding me? I don't know all these names. Well, shame on you. This guy invented matches. Fire wherever you go. Oh my goodness. So this, this writer for Ecclesiastes is like, you're going to make your best mark, but then you're going to be forgotten. These guys are forgotten and they changed the world. And these aren't even big inventions. But imagine your life without them. I mean, right? Chocolate chip cookies and potato chips and matches. I mean, come on. All right. We continue 12 to 18, because that, that's our perspective. We needed to get that perspective in here. 12 to 18, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on, on mankind. So those of us who studied Esther with, with me, we waited the whole book to get God mentioned. We get it in the first chapter here. I guess, thank God. Here it is. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. There it is again. All of them are meaningless. They're chasing after the wind. That's another thing. He likes to say that. Imagine chasing wind. 
Imagine you say, I got it. I got, did you? Did you actually get it? Where'd it go? Oh, it's in my hand. Oh, show it to me. Oh, there, oh, there it goes. You didn't get the win, did you? But you chased it. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. That's the point. Is your life like a chasing after the wind? Are you chasing after the wrong things? Are you pursuing yourself above all else? I don't think that's the way we're supposed to go. But I digress. I'm getting ahead of myself. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Ooh. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ever ruled over Jerusalem before me. Again, Solomon comes to mind here. I think that's on purpose. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. So number one, the burden of wisdom. One of the things we learn from Socrates and Plato on is that the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. That's wisdom right there. Knowledge can increase, but if, for that knowledge to turn into wisdom, you've got to realize there's a lot I still don't know. And that really sucks, because I really want to learn a lot about this. But the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know a thing. Oh, my goodness. That's a burden. Wisdom that is not practiced is useless. You know, I remember, oh, I don't know, first couple years of being a pastor, it's like 2000, 2001 maybe, I remember this line I wrote in a little journal I wrote. I said, oh, I just read the book of Ecclesiastes today, a great philosophical book. Now, I had just finished, I was in seminary, but I had just finished getting a bachelor's degree in philosophy. And I was like this gadfly to my philosophy teachers because they knew guaranteed what my response papers were going to look like, every single one. They devolved into something like this. Yeah, Nietzsche or, you know, Descartes, whoever it is, that was great in theory, but in practice, it stinks. You can't practice this. You can't pr in practice, I would always want to take it from the world of theory to actually living this. And, and it was almost like they could set their watch by my paper, if you could set your watch by a paper. They were like, oh yeah, here's Bradshaw again, writing about theory and practice. But that's the burden of wisdom. Because wisdom that's not practice is useless. It's like chasing after wind. I'm so smart, but you don't put it into practice. So what are you? I, I don't really know what to call that anymore. I'm not trying to judge you, but seriously? Wisdom not put into practice is useless. It's, 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 it's frustrating. It's like potential hypocrisy. What is the point? He just knows so much, but, but look the way he lives. He hasn't applied any of that wisdom, not even once. Seriously? Who wants to listen to that? What does wisdom truly bring? In and of itself, wisdom brings frustration. It just brings, ugh. It just brings this life of, yeah, but. A yeah, but. It just doesn't bring much. In and of itself. Now, wisdom is a great thing. We're going to talk about pleasures. We're going to talk about a career. Those are great things. But when you live your life for them, they're lacking. How do I know? Because this guy doesn't come out of this text happy. And he's going to have it all. Oh, Lord, he's going to have it all. And if it's Solomon, oh, he's had it all. Okay. Pleasures. 1 to 11, chapter 2. If you're not in chapter 2, join me. 
I said to myself, this guy talks to himself a lot. I like that. Come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. I think I once said that when I, I approached a buffet. All right. Come now. <laughs> we got the crab rangoon over here. All right. We got the noodles. We're going to set a record today, kids. Come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. I like how the text cleans that up. I've known guys that uh, get the alcohol going and then have the stupidness follow. They're living for that stupid moment. Let's just get drunk tonight. Let's just do stupid things tonight. I think that's what's going on here. I might be reading into it, but he's talking about wine and then foolishness right afterwards, like two words later. I don't think it's big of a stretch here. Okay. Ah, folly, here we go. My mind still guided me with wisdom. Yeah, I bet. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I'm just going to get a big vat of alcohol and try to find the meaning of life, I guess. Here it is. What's the good life to have? Well, pour me a cup. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. Vineyards are handy for having more wine. I'm just saying. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and other slaves who were born to my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And again, you're just like, well, is that Solomon? He seemed pretty rich. Who was before Solomon? David. You got like one king before Solomon and maybe Saul if you want to count Saul. But Saul's not a son of David. So that's not a really a big line there. All the kings before you, there is one. But... But, if it's just remind us of Solomon, but as a later king, that actually has a lot of power. But think of Solomon. Okay, wow. <sighs> I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. All this was, in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. Oh, that's good. Oh, here we go. Verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Wow. Some of us can't leave that sentence. We're stuck there. Or we know someone's stuck there. <sighs> wow. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had told to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, all that pleasure. You've got to understand, he's making us think of Solomon. Um, I want to clean this up nicely. But Solomon had a, had a hundred sexual partners, a thousand sexual partners. How many wives? How many concubines? If we take the text at face value, that is a lot of sexual pleasure for one man. He says, come now, I'm going to test myself with pleasure. I know. The text is clear. Never mind the building projects and the, and the money. He had every advantage in life completely. He had it all. The wine, the this, the that, everything. Wow. And yet, it's not enough. This kind of stuff ought to be teaching us. It's like, well, you know, if I, only, if I had his life, I would show him, please. He had his life. He can't even show him. He had it all. 
we wonder about these athletes that, that you know, they have their, their locker room conversations, they speak in the third person, and they have a million-dollar contract, but then they're on skid row because they got nobody telling them no. they got nobody standing up to them and talking knowledge to them and talking wisdom to them. They just, oh, you're the greatest, you're the greatest, you're the greatest, and now, you know, take, take care of me, I'll take care of you. Nothing was gained under the sun. Wow. Okay, pleasure. Number one, seeking purpose in a feeling never works. I just summed up high school and college right there and your young adult life. If you seek purpose in a feeling, you will fail. You may find purpose for a small amount of time, but you'll never find it. Just like you may think you can chase after the wind and get it, but you'll never get it. Purposes are fleeting. Disney did us wrong when when, when Mother Willow told Pocahontas to follow your heart. Don't ever follow your stinking heart. Listen to your heart. Oh, heck yeah, listen to your heart. But to follow it? Oh, don't be stupid and daft. Because your heart's going to lead you this way, and then your heart's going to lead you that way, and then your heart's going to lead you that way, and it sure as heck is going to lead you that way. And those of you listening, I have no idea what I'm doing with that sentence. But yeah, I was pointing random directions. But still, don't ever... a, A purpose in a feeling? No. Number two, living for your resume or for your eulogy is lacking. I know people, I, they must do this, where you get a Christmas card at the end of the year, but the Christmas card doesn't have a check in it. It has a folded up piece of paper that was typed. <laughs> this is what I did this year. Like, oh, great. <laughs> you know, your eyes are already tired from rolling. And you're reading this and you're going, my goodness, what happened in like June or July? Are they realizing we haven't done enough for our Christmas letter? We better up our game. I wonder if they're living for their Christmas letter at the end of the year to be able to put something on that stinking page so people can realize, oh, look at them. Wow, I'll think of them for three more seconds before I cough. Some people are living for their resume. Some people, a little morbid, but then again, I am Gen X, so we had the Kurt Cobain, we had all that kind of... Some people are living for their eulogy. What will be said about me when I pass on? Who's going to be there? And what's going to be said at my funeral? What's going to be printed in the paper, if there will be a paper? What's going to be printed in the paper at that time? Number three, a life lived for the temporary cannot be accomplished, cannot accomplish truly anything lasting. You want to make it something eternally lasting? Number one, good luck with that. But number two, why are you focused on the temporary? The temporary can never, can never accomplish the eternal, ever. It is all about the here and now. Okay. Well, I, 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 I don't know what more to say about that one. Pleasures are such where you're moving towards that pleasure and you, you finally get that pleasure and you feel really good because that's what pleasure kind of means. And so you feel really good in that moment then all of a sudden you realize, especially if it's a sinful pleasure, you realize, I now hate myself and I did it again. You're kind of like a weird Britney Spears, oops, I did it again. It's like, yes, I'm, that was really bad. I don't want to ever do it again. But the next day, I want that pleasure again. I know better, especially if you're like me and you were a Christian. And that was like a decade of your life where you just gave yourself to a sin over and over and over again. I was living this text. (sighs) It's so lacking. So, so lacking. Meaningless. I felt meaningless with that. How God was able to use my story for his glory still shocks me. I guess that's why I'm here right now. 
Pleasures. Pleasures they don't accomplish. Don't go there. They're never going to bring you what you want, what you really want. They'll bring you the temporary garbage, but the lasting thing? No. 12 to 16, the reality. Oh, then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom. Oh, he's back to that again. Okay. Well, he's Solomon, so I guess. He makes me think he's Solomon. But also madness and folly. All right. Well, he's going to hedge his bets here. Here we go. What more can the king's successor do that has already been done? Oh, wow. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Oh, jeez, oh, here we go. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? And this word gain, think of that when it comes to this meaningless, this chasing after the wind. What really are you gaining? You think you're gaining so much, but at the end of the day, at the end of your life, what have you really gained? That's the point. That's the whole point of the book, wrapped up in one sentence, one question. What really, ultimately, have you gained? And ultimately, I'm throwing in that sentence for a reason. In a full and final way, which Ecclesiastes is most likely written by an old guy at the end of his life, looking back and going, well, that worked. That worked. Oh, yeah, that really worked. Look at that. Wow. This thing here, boy, that was worthless. This one here, completely, that didn't bring what I wanted. He's looking back and going, yeah, right. And that's where we are now. If we're still pursuing those things, what really are we going to gain? Okay, let's continue. I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. Ugh. The days have already come and both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Coming to a Christmas card near you. <laughs> it's the Bible thanks Merry Christmas to you pal yeah wow he's, he's really you can tell he's leading to a depression moment that we're going to get in verse 17 he's worked himself into a lather he's just like oh gosh I, I, it doesn't matter how I live I'm going to die it's like Psalm 37 excuse me well, Psalm 37 is also good Psalm 73 Psalm 73 he spends half the book, half the chapter going, yeah, why, what should I live right? Because I, I, I live to please God, but then I get dumped on, and the one who doesn't care about God seems to be blessed. That ain't fair. I remember uh, my senior year of college, I, 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 was, I joined a frat, and I wanted, it to, I wanted to, uh, take Jesus to, to people at my college. I wanted to be light in the darkness. Like, where's the darkest place? The Greek system. And so I joined a frat. I was the only Christian there. And they, 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 they kind of adopted me. They're like, yeah, JB has his Jesus thing, and it's all cool. But then senior year, I got diagnosed with MS. And they were like, oh, heck no. He's God's guy. He ain't supposed to get a disease like that. He's the Jesus dude. And we're cool with that. But why does he get, there's no, no, they didn't get it. They were mad. They're like, I don't understand it. Why is it you live the right life, you're living to please God? We don't care about God. You do. And you get it? They were ticked. They're like, seriously, JB? Why are you smiling right now? Little did I know that my smiles in those moments 
Believe it or not, God used those smiles to lead a couple of them to Christ. When I had my crap kicked out of me, and they're like, wow, I want that. It wasn't because I was any good, it was because God is good, and God worked through a bum like me. And back then, I feel like I was a bum. What I was just, ugh, that time of my life I regret. But yet to those people, I was the only Jesus they had. And so they don't let me call myself a bum. Like, oh, heck no. You were our Jesus guy. And we watched you with your disease. And that wasn't fair. See, that's what this is all about. It's like, I don't care how I live. I'm going to die. I'm going to have this. I'm going to have that. <sighs> Death legacies tend to be limited and defined by the next guy in line. Number one. I'll just live a great life and I'll pass on to my, my next guy, my, my son or my daughter. They're going to do something with it. This is the good president. Well, who's the next president? <laughs> Your legacy is defined by the next dude, next man up. Okay. Number two, death is inedible and memories don't ultimately last as time moves on. People are going to forget you at some point. I don't mean to rain on your parade. The Bible does. <laughs> your life's not all about your memories. It's like, you're not going to be remembered. You kidding me? A thousand years from now, they're going to think about me? Please. Well, let's go to work, 17. So I hated life. There it is. That's depression. I'm reading a book on depression right now called Dark Valleys. When you love Jesus but hate life. That's depression. When you hate your life. Some of you are there. I know, because I counsel people, and nine out of every ten are that I counsel. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Wow. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. Ah, this too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Wow. Number one, the self-focused life brings no lasting. The word is lasting. Autocorrect made it elating. I don't mind that. This actually doesn't work out that poorly here, but we're going for lasting. The self-focused life brings no lasting satisfaction. The I can't get no. Yeah. If you focus on yourself, someone's like, I'm just going to go to college and find myself. Stop. Haven't you had enough of yourself? Tell that to somebody who's in their 80s and watch them roll their eyes at you. Find yourself? Oh, you'll have time for that. I just got to find myself. No. It just doesn't work. Again, how do I know? Because if it worked, this guy would be preaching a different song, singing a different song, preaching a different story to us. Number two, these words he wrote down, just look at them with me. Hatred, grief, despair, pain, misfortune, anxiety, and depression are hating life. Boy, sign me up. 
wow, I, I don't think whatever he did worked because he wrote those words. We were expecting something like satisfaction or joy or happiness or can't wait to wake up in the morning and do it again. No. So in your green text here, what did he try? He tried wisdom. He tried pleasure. He tried his career. What did he pursue? He pursued a legacy. He pursued significance and accomplishments. He pursued feelings. He pursued himself. He pursued maybe having the best life possible. What did he find? He found emptiness, depression, anxiety, and frustration. He found etc. Yeah, dot, dot, dot. There's another reason I wanted to continue with the rest of chapter 2. Because I didn't want to end with this. I didn't want to end with just depression, with just nothing, with emptiness, with looking in the mirror and just bleh, nothing. There's hope. Could there be hope to the end of our text today? Really? Could we get hope? I mean, Really? Yes. Because even in the, in the muck and the mire he's trotting through, he finds something. And it's so important, he had to tuck it in here. 24 to 26. A person could do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. Okay. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. There's God again. That's twice as much as we had in Esther. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? All right, all right. To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, I got to drop the sinner word, did he? To the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. A couple points here. These couple points are going to rock your socks. They rocked mine. Number one. True enjoyment and satisfaction is found outside yourself. You've got to seek outside yourself. You have no chance of solving Mick Jagger's dilemma if you're constantly seeking yourself and the things of yourself. You've got to get outside yourself. I love in Psalm 121 where it says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains where does my help come from? You've got to lift your eyes up. Stop looking around you. Stop looking within you. Look up. You've got to look up. See your help up. As close to heaven as you can get. You've got to get outside yourself to find answers. Because the self is always going to lead you to selfishness by definition, and selfishness is the feeder river to the ocean of pride, and pride is like my way versus thy way. You know, my, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Lord's prayer. My will be done. It's like, how Frankie's saying it, I did it my way. You were propped up by the mob, Frankie. This is God. God, you can't do it my way. You can't do it my way. Impossible. Life's ultimate meaning, number two, is linked with pleasing God. Wow. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. New Testament spoiler alert. Dang. He drops it right in this armpit of the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes. We learn that if I'm going to find any hope in this life, I've got to get outside myself, and I've got to seek God and please Him. That's a mic drop moment right there. Blue here, text as we leave. 
What's God's role in the pursuits of our life? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you can't take that verse out of context because of the whatever you do. Do it all for the glory of God. That now defines your day. You wake up, God, I'm going to give you glory today. You go to sleep, God, did I give you glory today? Nope, I, I failed here, here, and here. I now know what to pray about. I now know what to confess. I now know what to ask for tomorrow. God, help me live better tomorrow. Help me give you glory tomorrow. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Number two, self-denial. Ooh, this is huge. Ooh, this is every stinking chick flick, every guy flick. This is every Hallmark movie. This is every, oh, every movie. It is self-denial versus the denial of the self. Ooh, there's your fortune cookie moment right here. Because one of those choices is godly. The other one is fleshly. I have an advanced master's degree in denying the self nothing. This guy here, how many uh, lovers did he go through? How many casks of wine did he go through? How many spending projects did he go through? How many days of people saying, oh, you're the greatest, oh, you're the greatest. He went through all of that, and it was nothing. Self-denial versus denying the self nothing. Mark 8, 34. You're not surprised when Jesus says, you want to follow after him, you've got to deny your self. Because if you don't deny yourself, your stinking self is going to get in the way, and you're going to be in Solomon's boat. Whatever is ultimately truly gained when the self is the pursuit, good luck with that. When the self is the pursuit, what really are you finding? Well, I can think about other people. Maybe the self is not the pursuit, but I'm going to think about other people's opinion of me. Maybe I'll make that my pursuit. I close with this. I call this Aunt Mabel. We all have an Aunt Mabel. And by the way, if you don't have an Aunt Mabel, you might be the Aunt Mabel. <laughs> Aunt Mabel's like this. You're not dating. So when are you going to start dating? You start dating. Aunt Mabel comes around again. When are you going to set the date? When are you going to put a, how do you kids say, a ring on that? <laughs> when are you going to put a ring on that? Okay, Aunt Mabel, there's a ring on that. Oh, when's the date? Can I come? I'm going to come to your wedding. She comes to the wedding. She waits a little bit because she's merciful. When's the first, when's the first kid? She waits a bit. When's the next kid? When are you going to give your mother grandkids? When am I going to get grandnieces and grandnephews or whatever it is? Aunt Mabel's never satisfied. Ever. If you live to please Aunt Mabel, you're falling into this trap again. You're once again back to yourself. It's just how others view yourself. Pursuits. Your pursuits define, especially if you're a Christian, who you're pursuing defines who you worship. Your pursuits define what idols are in your life. What's an idol? An idol is something you're willing to sin to keep. An idol is something you're willing to sin so it doesn't go away. What are your pursuits? Did our text here touch on your pursuit? I bet if you take one step back, it did. Maybe you're caught in pleasure. Maybe you're caught in seeking the best life now. Maybe you're caught in like, oh, I've got to have a career. The career has a legacy. I've got to have this. Like maybe you're living for your, 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 your Christmas letter. 
Maybe you're living for your resume. Maybe you're living for that gossip phone call you get to share with people about how this one accomplished this and this one accomplished that. I don't know. Who and what are you pursuing? What's God's role in that? How are you denying yourself? Or are you more, I'm going to deny myself nothing? That's the hardest question you're going to ask maybe in the whole Bible. And it's an Ecclesiastes freaking two. Right? Pursuits from Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. We continue this next week. Thank you for letting me share.